Jim Collins, uh, a number of years ago, wrote an excellent book for uh, business leaders and organizational leaders called Good to Great. Some of you might have read that book. And in that book, he talks about what is called the hedgehog concept. The hedgehog concept. Weird name, I know. It comes from an ancient Greek parable that compares the fox and the hedgehog. The fox is the one who does many different things somewhat well. His focus or uh, her focus is spread in all different directions. Rather, But the, the hedgehog, rather, is someone who is focused on one big thing. The hedgehog is obsessed with one main idea or vision or concept. And uh, Collins, in the book, makes the point repeatedly, and I think convincingly, that all great leaders and really all great organizations are hedgehogs, not foxes. That is, they orient their thinking and their activity around one big thing. And from the very beginning here at Christ Church, we're about a two-year-old church now, a little over two-year-old, two years old, we've sought to do something like that. And so you might be asking, what is our one big thing? What is our hedgehog concept? What is it that we are all about, that we orient everything else around? Well, it's, it's simply this. It's one main idea, and it's that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything. The gospel changes everything. The good news of what Jesus has done for sinners in his death and resurrection is the rock on which Christ church is founded. And every single thing we do is designed to promote and to live out that significant truth. And so today, we want to reorient ourselves on how the gospel changes the life of our church and our lives individually. And I want to use this text from Acts 2 to help us. You know, as any organization grows and develops some age and some history and matures, there's always a tendency towards vision drift. That is, towards moving away from the principle or the hedgehog concept that we were founded on and want to be all about. That's typical for any organization, churches not accepted. And so from time to time, periodically, I like to bring myself back and bring us as a church back to our one big idea, which I think is scripture's one big idea, and that is that the gospel changes everything. And this story of the early church in Luke 2, excuse me, Acts 2, helps us to see how that might look in our lives together. This is one of multiple vignettes, you might call them, that Luke gives us in this book called Acts, the early church's history, that is intended to give us sort of a programmatic view of what the church was like then, 2,000 years ago, and also of what the church in many ways should be all about now. So we see in these verses, as it were, a description that is prescriptive of every local church, of every group of people that commit to be together that have been impacted by the gospel. Another way to think about this passage is to see to see it as this. What we see here is Luke giving us the results or the impact of what happens in the lives of a local gathering of people when the gospel is at work, when the gospel is changing their lives and continually transforming them, this is the sort of church that shows up. And so it's worth our study for a few minutes this morning. 
And so here's what I want you to be asking yourself as we go through the story together. Does Christ's church reflect what we see here in Acts 2? And if it doesn't yet reflect that fully, which it certainly doesn't, let's pray and work together and lean into the gospel and enable and empower the Holy Spirit to continue to perform and do these things among us. And let's trust him to do these things and let's pray for these things. So given all that, here's the main idea, okay? Because of the power of the gospel, Christ's church is devoted to God's worship, to God's people, and to God's mission. Because of the power of the gospel, this church, Christ Church San Antonio, is devoted to God's worship, people, and mission. I'm going to spend the most time on the second point. Points one and three are going to be much shorter, okay? So I'm trying to help you out. I know you might have a lunch appointment at Rudy's. Just know point two is the longest point, okay? But the first point is this, that we want to be a church that's devoted to God's worship because that's what we see here in Acts chapter 2. Look again in the story with me. The first thing Luke says is that they, that is the believers there in Jerusalem, devoted themselves. And then Luke uses the word again, although it's not translated in the ESV for some reason. The word is used again in verse 46. And that's sort of a unique word in the New Testament. In fact, this is the only time that Luke, in all of his writings in Luke or Acts, uses this word. And he uses it twice in the span of about four verses, which means that it's a significant and important word. So what does it mean to devote yourself to something? Literally, it means something like to give consistent and long-term attention to someone or something. To give consistent and long-term attention to someone and something. Uh, Probably the best English word to get that idea across is the word commitment. Commitment. So Luke is telling us here that the early church committed themselves to certain activities and attitudes together. They devoted themselves to these things. And then in verse 42, he gives us four things in particular that the early church devoted themselves to. We see them there. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, we'll talk about that more in a minute, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. So three of those four items, really all four of them, are related to the idea of Christians when they're gathered on Sundays, on the Lord's Day, the day of Jesus' resurrection, to worship God with one another. We read that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. That is, their witness or testimony to what has happened in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. If you read through Acts, you'll see that all of the preaching of the apostles is centered around that one big idea, that Jesus has made all things new and reconciled God to the world through his death and resurrection. That's how God's grace is made known. The apostles teaching is all about that. And that's what becomes the New Testament, of course. The church was devoted to those things, to the preaching and teaching of the gospel from the testimony of the apostles. And then secondly, they were devoted in their worship to the breaking of bread. And this isn't just a reference to sort of hanging out and having chips and salsa together. Notice it's the breaking of bread. That's a very minor detail and yet an important one. That definite article, the, implies that what Luke is referring to here is the sacrament of communion. So it's not just hanging out with chips and salsa watching the cowboys, although that's a great thing for the church to do as well. This is particularly a reference to the breaking of bread, that is, to holy communion, to 
when we celebrate that sacrament together. So it's another reference to worship. And then they're devoted to, notice again, the prayers. You see that there. So not just prayer in general, although of course prayer in general is a good thing, but in particular the prayers of the people, really what we just did here in our own worship service. So all three of those are references to the worship of God. The church of Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 2 is presented as a worshiping people, as a people devoted to that sort of activity. You might say that as a result of what the gospel is doing in the lives of these ancient Christians, the initial and immediate and natural response to God's gospel is to worship to worship and bring praise and glory to the God of the gospel. And the reason that that's the case is because worship, really, at the end of the day, worship is simply our, it's our coming back to the well of God's grace and drinking fully of it. It's remembering again and again what God has done for us in Jesus' life and death and resurrection as we sing and as we hear and as we celebrate the sacrament and as we spend time with one another. Worship is the way in which God reminds us of his goodness and grace and of our need. And therefore, it's worth our devotion. So what might that look like for you now, 2,000 years later? Well, for one, I think it's important when we're gathering for worship on Sundays to come expectantly. To come expectantly. It's so easy for us to just get into the routine of either not going to church or going every now and then or going regularly. But we just sort of, it becomes ho-hum and routine. And as we move into the fall, can I just challenge you? Can I just challenge you to come prayerfully and expecting that God is going to be here? That God is going to be here in a profoundly special and gracious way. When fallen, broken people who are trying their best get together, God meets with us. Can you see worship in that light? Come expectantly. And I'd also encourage us, I think, to come joyfully. One of our core values from the very beginning has been a commitment to joyful worship. To singing as if we actually believe the things we're singing to hearing God's word as if it's actually true, to coming to the table as if we understand and know that through this, God is actually at work in our hearts imparting more of his love to us. That's what it might look like for us to continue to devote ourselves to God's worship this fall. So we devote ourselves to God's worship. Secondly, we devote ourselves to God's people as a result of the gospel at work among us. Look at verses 40, well, in verse 42, we read that they devoted themselves to fellowship, and then Luke elaborates on that in 44 through 46. And what you see there is extremely strong community language, right? They had all things together in common. They gave their possessions to help those who had need. They were together day by day with one another, worshiping and sharing one another's homes, So these ancient Christians are deeply united around and in their mutual faith in Jesus of Nazareth. So what can we learn about our own vision and life together here at Christ Church as a result of what we read about their community 2,000 years ago? 
Here's the way one of my mentors in ministry put it. He says that our relationships at Christ Church or at any church are to be defined not as consumer relationships, but as covenantal relationships. We are not to have consumer relationships with our church, but covenantal relationships. What does that mean? Well, a consumer relationship, as you might guess, is one between a vendor and a customer in which there's a mutual understanding that the relationship will continue only as long as the customer is satisfied with the goods and services produced by the vendor or the seller, right? So, for example, we had to take our van to our auto mechanic a few weeks ago before we were um, going to take a trip to Colorado driving our van. I wanted to make sure it got checked up on. So they had it all morning, and they call me at about noon and say, your radiator is cracked and messed up, and it's about to you know, literally fall out of your car, and there's 4,000 other problems, and it's going to be 1500 bucks. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to take this to a second mechanic just to get a second opinion and see. And so I took it to a second mechanic that I have reason to believe is trustworthy, and uh, he looked at it during the morning, and he came back and said, you just need a couple of new, uh, new front axle. That's your problem, you know? And I said, what about the radiator? How's the radiator? The radiator's fine. There's no issue with the radiator at all. And, you know, that's one of those moments where I, I have no idea who's telling me the truth. But because I have reason to trust this person, we went ahead and went with that, and we made it to Colorado and back just fine. And so my relationship with our prior mechanic has now ended. The relationship with a new mechanic has begun. It's a consumer relationship. Another example is my relationship with DirecTV, which is about to end. It's about to end because they spiked my bill up again, because I get 5,000 channels, of which I watch about two, and uh, because it's just not worth it anymore in a streaming society. And so that's on my to-do list, end DirecTV. And I suspect that might be on some of your to-do lists as well especially if you're early adopters, you've probably already done it. Those are examples of consumer relationships, right? Covenant relationships are different, however. In covenant relationships, listen, you commit to the person and the relationship itself regardless of whether or not you get everything you hoped for out of the relationship. That makes me cry too. The supreme example of this relationship is God's relationship with his people, right? God has entered into a covenant relationship with us. I mean, think about it. I don't know about you, but I know for me, God doesn't get all that he hopes for from me in terms of my worship and service and obedience and love. But God isn't in it because of how much of it he's going to get from me. He's in it because he made a covenant. He committed himself to the relationship. It's not a consumer relationship. Uh, The relationship between parents and children is like this as well, right? You know, as a parent, that you commit to parenting and raising your children, whether or not it might feel fully satisfying to you at any given moment. You know, no parent who, you know, is respected and not in jail, is a parent who, when he gets frustrated with his children or when she gets frustrated with her children, you know, puts their children up on eBay or Craigslist and says, you know what, I'm in the market for new children that are going to satisfy me in more full ways. Another example of a covenant relationship is marriage, right? Remember those vows you took, you married folk, to be married for better or for worse, right? 
the level of your satisfaction is not the final terminus point of the nature of the relationship. Now, here's the punchline. The relationships that you have with each other, with other people at your church, are covenant relationships, not consumer relationships. Okay, listen. Parenthesis. This is not Pastor Luke's passive-aggressive way of getting mad at you and saying you should be more involved. I'm not doing that. I don't have any particular people in mind that I'm ticked off at for not showing up to Bible. That's not what this is. So don't get mad. Don't send me an email saying, I know I have, don't do that. I'm not trying to sort of do an autobiographical thing here under the surface, okay? I'm laying out the vision that God has for his people. And the point that he makes about community is one that does apply to all of us. And I need to hear this too. Listen, when we say, I will stay here with these people as long as I feel satisfied, we are acting like consumers. And we are acting in a way that contradicts the very nature of the gospel and what God wants to do among us. Now, that's not saying there's never a good reason to leave a church, but that's a different sermon for a different time. I mean, where is consumerism in Acts 2? It's nowhere. And ironically, if the implicit dialogue that you are having with yourself is that you aren't getting what you need in this relationship, you aren't getting what you need from these people and therefore you should move on, the irony is that you aren't going to find what you're looking for in the new place or in the new person or in the new small group either. You see, this is a very important point. Commitment to community precedes the flourishing of community. You first commit to a people, to a spouse, to a child, to a church. And then as you're committed to that and working out that commitment with all of its ups and downs, you begin to experiencing to experience the, the flourishing and the depth and quality of relationships that we all deep down long for. You know, we all want good, healthy, deep, satisfying relationships. But we aren't going to find those. We're not going to find those unless there's a prior commitment to working towards them with one another. That's what we see here in Acts chapter 2. To experience deep community requires commitment. And I think that we can all intuitively grasp that point. If you're a follower of Jesus, perhaps you know that it's almost impossible for you to really grow by yourself. I mean, it's sort of like the need that we almost all have for workout partners, right? If you want to work out regularly, it's almost always better to have a friend or a buddy who's going to meet you there, who's going to provide some level of accountability, right? That's going to enable you to do it in more consistent and more healthy ways. And that's true with all manner of good habits. It's also true with relationships. Unless we make ourselves accountable to one another, we're going to repeatedly slip and fall away. And the beautiful thing about church community is that it shows us that we need each other. That we need each other, just like the church in Acts 2 did, for the continued renewal and sanctification and change that the gospel provides. So we grow together and not separately. Therefore, look around the room. These people are worthy of your devotion, worthy of your commitment. And the beautiful thing about community that we see exemplified here in this story is that as we gather together, 
we see different gifts and different attributes and different qualities spring up in our own lives and in the lives of others that we would have never seen otherwise. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, gives this famous illustration about his relationship with two guys, Ronald and Charles. Ronald, by the way, is J.R.R. Tolkien. Charles is Charles Williams, the Inklings. And he talks about how after Charles Williams died, not only did he lose Charles, but he lost part of Ronald as well. Let me just read this quote. Here's what he writes. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to one of Charles's jokes. Far from having more of Ronald, having him, quote, to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third and a fourth. We possess each friend not less but more as the number of those with whom we share him increases. It's so true that that's the way church community works. As you devote and commit yourself to being with a particular people in a particular place at a particular time, you see attributes, qualities, healthy characteristics coming out in your own life and in the lives of others that would not have been there had that community not existed. It took the community of Acts 2 for them to experience the radical generosity that they experienced, for them to see the conversions that they saw, for them to worship God with the fervor and hope with which they worshiped him. So as we move into the fall, it's important for us then to continue the good hard, faithful work of devoting ourselves to each other. How do you do that? Well, first, uh, two things real quick. First, I I want you to just see from this, one of the many consequences of this text is the importance of what we call church membership. Um, Church membership is a way in which you visibly promise to devote yourselves to one another together. And we value that. We think that's important. We think that all of you, if you want to call this place home, should join as a member because it's a public and profound way in which you live out the promises and the story of the gospel and live out what we see here in Acts chapter 2. We have a new members class coming up in a few weeks that we'd love for you to be a part of. And then secondly, again, you've heard me say this before, I'm sure, you need to be in a small group just to be very, very practical. Uh, We need you here on Sundays, devoted to God's worship, devoted to each other, devoted to mission here on Sunday, but Sunday is not enough. You're not going to develop flourishing community and relationships if you're only here for a couple of hours a week with one another on Sundays when we're gathered. And so our missional community groups are designed for just this intent. They're designed to enable you over time to get to know people and have people get to know you, to build trust with people, to pray with and for others and have others pray for you. And that takes time. And it's not always the best thing in the world when you get together for a community group. I mean, I love our community group, but it's not that great sometimes. They're all mad at me now. Sometimes it's great, sometimes it's okay, but over time. Over a couple of years, you get to know each other. You learn to care for one another. You know what's going on in each other's lives. You trust one another. You serve one another. It's an essential part to being on the radar in our ministry. So these are kicking up. We're just about to start a couple of new ones. Aaron, 
our pastor who's not here yet, I'm already giving him work to do, he's in charge of these. So if you're not involved in one, let me know. We'd love to get you plugged in as soon as we can. It's a way that we devote to God's people, to devote ourselves to one another. So we devote ourselves to God's worship as a result of the gospel, to God's people as a result of the gospel, and then the story tells us that we finally and briefly devote ourselves to God's mission. Look at verse 47. We read there that as a result, you see, of their community together, they are praising God and they have favor with all the people. And what happens? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being the saved. So, As we devote ourselves to community, we are also in that process devoting ourselves to God's mission. What is God's mission? God's mission is to rescue people out of sin and death and hell through the work of Jesus for them, which forgives them of all sin and gives them a new heart and a new spirit and allows them to live in a way that God originally intended in fellowship with him and in fellowship with one another. That's the mission of God. And we see that happening in the early church here. It's happening regularly. Notice, day by day, Luke tells us, people are being saved. And notice that it's the Lord who is doing this. The Lord added to their number. Listen, the real secret of fruitful mission and fruitful evangelism, it seems from this story, is the quality of the church community. Mark Dever, a pastor in Washington, D.C., puts it like this. The church itself is God's evangelistic program. The church itself is God's evangelistic program. Why is that? Or what does that mean? 1 John, a letter towards the end of the Bible, chapter 4, tells us, it tells us this. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So so the invisible God and the invisible God's love is made visible, so to speak, through our love for one another, through our community. So a church that is devoted to mission is a church in which people encounter the church as a network of relationships and not just an event or a place that people go to. You know, this might be true for you too. Usually in my experience, people who aren't believers of Jesus are attracted first to the Christian community and then to the Christian message. That's usually been the case in my experience. You know, the fact of loving community, here's the point, is a powerful means of telling others about Jesus. And one of the things that, one of the reasons that's such a cool and important point is because it means that as you're loving one another here, you are also, and as a byproduct of your community building and love for one another, you are, you are doing evangelism. You're doing mission. And even if you're not sort of the extrovert, gifted evangelist who's going to go door to door and knock on everybody's door and bring thousands of people to Jesus, you can have a deep impact and effect in evangelism through using your gifts in the community because you're making the community more beautiful and therefore more attractive, more amazing, more inspiring, more interesting for those that have never experienced community like that before. I love the way that um, Steve Timmis puts it in his book, Total Church. Here's what he writes. If evangelism is a community project, 
our different gifts and personalities can complement one another. Some people are good at building relationships with new people. Some are socialites, the ones who will organize a trip or an activity. Some people are great at hospitality. Some are good at initiating gospel conversations. Some are good at confronting heart issues. Most gospel ministry involves ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. As we love and care for one another, as we commit and devote ourselves to one another, we are also, in essence, devoting ourselves to the mission of God. The church is is the way in which the gospel becomes sensible and beautiful to people in our day and age. So are you willing, as we move forward together, to commit yourselves to one another so that you can also commit yourselves to those who have not yet heard and trusted in the message of Jesus themselves? That's where, that's where we are headed. That's, that's where we want to go. We want to pray for and work towards seeing God add to our number day by day those who are being saved. So a couple of very practical ways that you can help us in that and then we're done, okay? Consider how you can invite others into life together with God at Christ Church. So your evangelistic, your evangelistic role, your evangelistic calling as a Christian is not necessarily simply to share the propositions of the gospel with someone, although that's a very important thing to do. And that is necessary as well, by the way. But think of it like this. Think of it as beginning a process of building relationships with other people who know Jesus. So that's, by the way, why we do these events, like uh, bowling nights and swim parties and back-to-school picnics. Yeah, we want to hang out together. We enjoy being with one another. But these are, these are events designed for you to bring others in and just let them sort of see and experience the way we treat one another, the way we care for one another, the way we're committed to one another. That is evangelistic. So who is in your life that you can invite to a back-to-school picnic, that you can invite to some gathering of your community group, that you can invite to a pool party, you students. That's a great way in which you begin the process dynamic of evangelism. So there's all sorts of ways that you and your ordinary life rhythms can begin to include people that are far from Jesus and people that are close to Jesus together in relationship. And that's when the Holy Spirit goes to work. God has been at work at our church. We've been here for three, a little over three years now. We've been worshiping for a little over two years. And as we've prayed and seen fruit, we are seeing, uh, by God's grace, a commitment to just these things. I'm proud of you, and I'm grateful to be your pastor. And we want to move forward. We want to continue forward in the process of devoting ourselves to God's worship, devoting ourselves to God's people, to each other, and in that act, devoting ourselves to the mission of God. God is at work. He is going to build his church, and he's going to use you. He's going to use me to do that. I hope you want to be a part of the ride. God's driving the bus. The destination has already been secured. Let's get on. Let's go to work. Let's serve and love and worship and care for one another, even this fall. Let's pray.